0: Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels.
1: I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colum
2: O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in Dublin, but currently at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin.
0: This week, British and EU officials get up close and personal in Brussels with the first face-to-face negotiations on the future relationship since early March, but by all accounts, the new format did not deliver any magic. We'll
2: assess what went wrong and where to from here, especially since Britain's chief negotiator David Frost has his mind on other things.
1: And we'll take a look at a troubling issue that's lain dormant since the referendum, the UK land bridge issue, and what Brexit will mean for Irish trade flows to the continent via the port of Dover, once Britain leaves for real at the end of this year.
2: So, Tony, the first week of face-to-face talk sounded rather like one of those dates where people meet in a place where it's easy to get out if things go wrong. It did go wrong.
0: Yeah, so they met in Brussels for the first time, column since early March. Uh, this time, instead of 100 negotiators coming over or, or 100 officials from London, there were only 16. Uh, and the reason for that was that these were the, the, the heads of the clusters uh, of... Officials who are tackling the different subjects in these negotiations. We have 11 what they call columns altogether. Um, so instead of having a whole bunch for each column, they had just one head for each column and a few other officials coming over so that they would be able to try and work in a more intimate, more focused way uh, with their EU counterparts. And the idea was that David Frost and Michelle Barnier, the, the to chief negotiators would be on hand to provide any political cover if they felt that there was room for manoeuvre, that there was some a thread that they could pull at and, uh, and try and shift some red lines. Um, but even with that new format, um, it looked like nothing really shifted this week. Now, again, the four big issues that are the stumbling blocks are the level playing field, especially state aid rules, um, police and judicial cooperation, fisheries, and finally the governance issue. In other words, how do you resolve disputes between both sides in future? In other words, again, is there a role for the European Court of Justice, etc.? Um, so it looked like things really didn't shift very much this week. And indeed, the negotiations ended on Thursday rather than Friday, which was originally the plan. So that does not augur well for this new format that. Was agreed between both sides um, after Boris Johnson met the the heads of the main EU institutions a few weeks ago. Um, so there was a bit of optimism at the start of this week that, you know, both sides at the highest political level had said, "Look, we want a deal." it's in our interest to get a deal. We've got this new format. There's going to be an intensification of negotiations. So there was a bit of optimism swirling around that this might start to deliver some results. And this week, even though it was a restricted session, not, not a full set of negotiators, um, you know, it, it was really a pilot for this new format might work out so the fact that things didn't go too well uh, is not really a great sign
2: david frost tweeted the out the uh, schedule of negotiations nicely color-coded before he headed off so the level playing field was day one on monday horizontal arrangements on governance was on the afternoon of that day fisheries on tuesday trade in goods trade in services and investment also late on tuesday wednesday was supposed to be the criminal law Then there was networks, energy and transport, participation in union programmes was supposed to happen on Wednesday as well. Then we had mobility, social security and thematic cooperation pencilled in for Friday with two sessions left open and then a meeting of the chief negotiators on Friday. But obviously that was, as you say, somewhat truncated. So, Sean, how's it all gone down? We've had barbs being traded across the media as people feeling disrespected since the negotiations broke down.
1: Yes, although Boris Johnson was uh, attempting to pour some oil on the the, the troubled waters this morning uh, in a very rare radio interview uh, in which he said there was no disrespect uh, of uh, Michel, as he calls him, or the EU system, uh, which he assured us he knows very well and understands deeply, uh, no doubt from his years in Brussels, Um, but he said he, he thinks it's just right Uh, that uh, Britain should not continue to uh, be under the arbitration of the European Court of Justice or have EU laws applying once we leave um, or uh, to hand over what he called our amazing fish stocks. Um, So we're not going to do any of these things and uh, try to to gloss over it that one. He said he was more optimistic than Michel and uh, he thought a good deal is still there to be done. Uh, But uh, he said, obviously, if we can't do that deal, we still have what he called the very good option of an Australian style arrangement uh, with the EU. So I guess saying, look, if, if these talks don't work out and we end up with no deal at the end of the year, uh, then we revert to what they call over here, the Australian arrangements or what everybody else calls no deal.
2: And post hostilities, Tony, what were the briefings like in Brussels?
0: Well, there weren't any sort of majorly organized briefings, but I mean, just my own uh, chats with officials painted a picture of, yeah, not not much progress on those four big issues. But um, I, I think the, the EU side really kind of laying it on the line to the UK that, look, you, you know, we are really going to have to have something that is strong and durable and legally robust on state aid. Uh, That's going to be a a very major uh, red line for us. Um, And fisheries is going to be a a very strong red line for the EU as well. Now, on fisheries, you know, there have been a few chinks of light here and there. Again, just for listeners, the EU wants pretty much the status quo so that all the quota arrangements that are allocated to member states, including Ireland, that they would more or less stay intact the UK is saying, look, we're taking back control of our waters. Uh, yes, we will allow EU boats back into those waters, but we will have more of the quota uh, through an arrangement called zonal attachment. Um, we've mentioned this one that it's hideously technical, and I won't go into it here. But um, those are the two uh, ends of the spectrum in terms of the negotiating positions. Now, Michel Barnier has kind of intimated that you know, zonal attachment we can look at. Um, But we must look at other criteria as well, such as the historic access to UK waters that European fleets uh, have enjoyed. Um, One thing to remember on fisheries is that this is an extremely important issue to Emmanuel Macron, the French president. And of course, he's had a tough week with his cabinet resigning and uh, the prime minister resigning and having a pretty wretched time in the local elections. And He's going for election in in two years' time and he's not going to want the EU to surrender uh, willy-nilly on fish and fisheries uh, because that constituency is very important, especially along that northwest uh, French coast, a very big, important political uh, constituency there and fishing communities. Uh, The far right have been doing quite well around there. So I think this is, again, Fisheries is going to be a very tough nut to crack, and it's, it's going to take uh, quite some time. Overall, I would say that the feeling in Brussels was that the, the EU really laid down the line on state aid and on the importance of the European Court of Justice to have a role in uh, the way state aid is monitored. Um, both sides would have to sign up to principles. Um, and from the principle, then you can you can set out uh, a, a bunch of rules that everybody follows, but those rules can't cut across the EU's own uh, jurisdiction right. or state aid. And for that reason, you know, the ECJ must be in there somewhere, you know, in the background. Um, and also when it comes to police and judicial cooperation, if the UK wants to get access to EU databases on crime and DNA and on vehicle licenses and so on, then... You know, the the, the the European Court of Justice must be there in the background as well to ensure that citizens' rights are protected. Well, is that um, part of the
2: problem of what we saw this week, that both sides came and reiterated what their bottom line is? As you say, the EU laid it on the line. And we get the impression from certainly from the, the other end of things, as Sean flagged there, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson's uh, utterances this morning talking about not surrendering amazing fish and not having the ECJ having any role in the UK. Is there any movement at all or are people just restating hardened versions of their own bottom lines? Is there any engagement on where the grounds for compromise might be?
0: Well, I mean, there, there are ideas that have been flittering around uh, in the past few weeks and people sort of snatch at apparent openings, uh, but then the door kind of slams shut again. And we've seen that with uh, the level playing field and state aid. Michelle Barnier a few weeks ago said, well, we, we can look at a, a toolbox of ways that we might solve this. Uh, so that's, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the EU has said that it will compromise uh, you know, in order to get a deal and that compromise is not a dirty word in Brussels as we know. Um, but they're just not spelling out yet what, what that means. Um, I think the take-home message for me this week was that certainly on the EU side, that they, they feel that the, the strength, the feeling that they have or, or the importance that they attach to state aid and the level playing field and the European Court of Justice that the UK side have kind of got that uh, at, the, at this point and that that has somewhat sunk in to the UK side. Now, this is uh, obviously the perspective of, of the EU. Uh, the UK might have a completely different idea.
1: Yeah, the um... The UK um, may well have a different idea, all right. But also, I, I would say, look at what uh, has been taking place in the leadership of the EU. We've had this change uh, of the presidency, the rotating presidency. Germany is now in the chair and Angela Merkel making addresses during the week, saying what has been said, um, perhaps less publicly uh, by uh, people like the, the head of the German Uh, mission, the Perm Rep in Brussels, that really Brexit is a deal to be sealed in the autumn. It's a September, October uh, negotiation with heavy uh, political uh, action. Then the real political action in Europe, the attention right now is on the, the budget and the COVID recovery fund. And, you know, Tony will tell you more about the build up to the summit that's happening in a couple of weeks time there. But uh, that is where the energies of the uh, EU is uh, right now. And perhaps the British have taken that on board as well and are thinking, well, there's no point in making political concessions right now because the Europeans mind isn't really on the game uh, at the moment. again, this is something that the British side have been saying for a couple of months now that the eu is focusing on other issues besides brexit in the immediate term and that other big issue is of course the, the budget and the COVID issue uh they have set aside time for this at least in angela merkel's mind uh, for september october and perhaps that is the time really to do it but then you'd wonder why they've fixed all of these other negotiating periods anyway and if you're not seeing any uh traction starting to be gained now in this renewed set of face-to-face talks, uh, perhaps is there much point in going on with them? Uh, One would have hoped that they would make progress at the margins on the technical issues and finesse things down so that really you're down to a few hard points to be solved on a political level and that you have uh, developed so many understandings between the negotiating teams that you can more or less quickly move to draft the kind of conclusions that you need, depending on what political deals get made in the autumn. But what happened this week didn't sound very good. And just a a final observation on the timings of of when all this fell apart. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the train timetables. Well, yesterday's uh, statements dropped shortly before the uh, once a day Eurostar left back to London. So, right. there's no prospect even of running it into the afternoon or sticking around overnight. That there were certain deadlines in this, and they could see, I think, quite early on that this thing wasn't going anywhere. So, they might as right. well pull the shutters down. If they're going to do it, they're going to have to pull the shutters down Thursday morning or else they're going to be stuck for another night.
2: Not the first time the railway timetables have caused trouble in Europe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, um, oh it's that time of the year as well
2: it is indeed uh tony just the formation of government here we got an announcement of uh the cabinet obviously with simon coveney staying in position he's going to be foreign affairs and defense comes into that as well which is an interesting combination but not for this podcast thomas byrne is going to be the Minister for EU Affairs uh, straddling the Department of Antichoke and the Department of Foreign Affairs. But looking at the programme for government, which I suppose come in, comes into sharper focus, particularly today when there was an announcement of £30 million to look at Rosslair Port. Under Brexit and the programme for government, one of 24 mentions, to be precise, it says, We will continue to work with Dublin and Rosslair Ports and Dublin Airports to make sure they're ready for all Brexit scenarios. We will continue to underline the importance of the UK land bridge with the European Commission negotiating team and engage with our partners in France, the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany to ensure the UK land bridge remains a viable and efficient route to market. It seems it's it's actually, of all of the Brexit mentions in the programme for government, this one about the land bridge is perhaps the most specific and even though it's only a principles document, the most detailed.
0: Yeah, this is very interesting because uh, there are... The land bridge issue has suddenly broken surface again. Um, I mean, just just to kind of set it in context, at the moment, three million tonnes of Irish freight goes across and back to the EU's single market, the the continent, via the UK land bridge. Um, And it is by far the quickest way to get your goods to, to the single market. And it is preferred by people sending high-value goods uh, and goods that that are kind of just-in-time products. So a a growing amount of food is being exported from Ireland to Europe. Um, Last year, for the first time, food exports to Europe exceeded that to the UK, which is quite significant. Now, obviously, when the UK is in the single market and the customs union, then all of that movement of Irish freight to the continent Is free-flowing you know boats uh, ships get on uh, trucks get on boats roll across the uk get on another boat roll off at calais and off they go but obviously when britain leaves at the end of this year for good uh, um, all that's going to change because britain will be a third country and you're going to have this very tricky problem of irish trucks being blended in with uk trucks uh, which are third country trucks uh, going to calais or Rotterdam or Zeebrugge, or wherever. Uh, And those British trucks obviously will have a completely different regime to encounter when they get on the other side. They're going to encounter regulatory and customs checks and controls and formalities, whereas Irish trucks are going to be bringing goods that are already produced and formalised through our EU membership. So we shouldn't have to have any uh, formalities or controls. Um, Now, the Irish side have been quietly over the past number of years pushing this problem of the land bridge and initially after Brexit happened you know it wasn't clear whether they should push this during the divorce negotiations the withdrawal agreements or whether they should push it in the future relationship negotiations but as far back as I think April 2017 there were contacts between uh, Irish officials in Brussels and the Michel Barnier's task force on a a form of words that would take account of Ireland's unique geographical problems, having to cross over Britain to get their goods to the single market. And of course, the single market is what it's all about. Uh, and Ireland could make a good argument that look, we have to be helped out here. And we have to be facilitated. Now, a lot of these discussions then came to to the surface again last year when it looked like. There was going to be a no deal Brexit in October. Uh, the Irish were talking to the Dutch, to the Belgians, to the French, and to the Germans and the Commission. How are we going to deal with the land bridge? Like, how can we be sure that Irish trucks coming off boats at Calais are not going to have to queue up with British boats, that they're not going to be subject to checks and controls? Um, and, you know, the, everyone was trying to figure out a solution. The problem is that. Um, just by chance, in December, a huge piece of EU legislation came into effect. Uh, It's called the Official Official Controls Regulation, and it basically brings together years of EU rules on agri-food, on food safety, on animal feed, on pesticides, uh, on uh, that whole sphere of very important, very sensitive stuff, you know, that kind of implications for consumers and so on. And we know from our experience, and Sean, when you were in Brussels, you would have covered some of these food scandals. Uh, it is a very sensitive issue for the Commission. Now, Irish officials discovered that, that the way the Commission was interpreting this new set of rules would have meant that Irish food exports coming off boats into the into continental ports would have been subject to much more onerous checks and controls. Oh, why um, is that if the trucks the, are being packed Ireland in
2: moment. Ireland, sealed in Ireland, put on a ferry and rolling across the UK as as the name Landbridge suggests, without stopping or unpacking or taking on any extra freight, if it's sealed in Ireland and brought and rolled off on the continent in the same sealed container on the back of a truck or the same refrigerated unit or whatever way it goes, why would it be why would it fall victim to these particular checks?
0: Well this is the question that the Irish were asking Um, I mean, first of all, when it comes to industrial goods leaving Ireland and going to the single market, there is going to be an arrangement through uh, the Common Transit uh, Convention, which the UK is signing up to. So that would then permit the movement of goods from one part of the single market to another, but simply crossing the territory of of what's now a third country. Uh, But the Transit Convention facilitates that kind of movement so you don't have to have checks and controls on the other side. Everything's logged in a a system called the New Computerised Trade System, uh, NCTS. Um, And the Irish felt that, well, food exports should come under that system as well. But the commission felt, actually, no, we need to know uh, everything there is to know about um, food products, live animals that are coming into the single market from uh, from a third country even if they have come originally from Ireland, which is a, an EU member state, which, as you say, has fully complied with all the veterinary, uh, food safety, animal health uh, regulations. So initially, when the Irish side brought this to the Commission's attention, my understanding is that the Commission were you know, not that pushed to try and change things. But the, the point is that in Michel Barnier's negotiating mandate for these future negotiations that we've been talking about, There is actually a line in there which spells out that Ireland has a specific geographic challenge and that that has to be taken account of by both the EU and the UK in these negotiations. So effectively, the Irish said to the Commission, look, you've acknowledged that we have a specific geographical problem and it's in the negotiating mandate, which is a fairly sacred document. So you're going to have to help us out here. Um. There's a fair amount of lobbying then going on between the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, and their contacts in Brussels, but also in in Paris, in, in uh, the Netherlands, in Germany, in, in Belgium as a whole. Um, these are the countries that have UK facing ports. And if they're going to have to do something to facilitate Irish trucks coming off boats, then these countries might have to change infrastructure. They might have to have a, a separate lanes and so on. So this was this was quite an effort for the Irish side to work this up and, and get people on board. And it, you can imagine that it's not going to be something that is interesting to the Croats or the Poles or, or the Latvians. So Ireland had to work through what became known the G5, the group of five countries that are involved in this. And eventually, they went to the to the commission that went up to the task force, Michel Barnier's task force. And then they got vets from all sides to sit down and try and figure out how to fix this. Right. And the Irish government had actually drawn up their own proposals, a technical paper which they circulated among these five capitals and the Commission. And eventually this week just they they have come to an agreement. So just to cut a long story short, and even though <laughs> this is a long story, <laughs> um the 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 um the kind of IT system that the commission wanted to use to monitor and, and make sure stuff is pre-notified before it comes into EU ports, they basically swapped that for for another system which, you know, will give you the data, but it is less onerous in terms of the the potential for Irish trucks to be pulled over and checked. Um and, and this is the fix that they've come to there's there's another fix as well when it comes to live animals going through the Netherlands, um, even though most of the cattle and so on go from Rosler apparently to direct to France. But just say live animals are coming from Ireland over the land bridge to the Netherlands. They've agreed that these animals can be received at ports, even though those ports are not licensed to to carry out veterinary inspections. So again, this is another kind of fix that Mm. the commission has agreed to. Um, And there's a standing committee on animal health. Uh, All 27 member states have vets on this committee and they're going to sign off on this uh, next week. Tony, uh, just a couple
1: of things uh, occur out of that. I mean, one on the animal, um, live animal exports. Uh, The the, uh, British government, led by Boris Johnson, uh, have been quite firm on trying to shut down live animal exports out of the UK. And I'm just wondering if that is going to impact uh, directly on Irish live animal exports. I mean, I can't see the logic myself in driving truckloads of live animals across Britain to get to France. Uh, but if the British are clamping down on it, that might become problematic. I think it may even have been a manifesto commitment during the general election, but it was certainly talked about during the general election. Vote Tory, and we will ban uh, live animal exports. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that occurs to me is there not precedent, though, here that the Irish can rely on in the Greece has to send its uh, exports uh, through trucks going up through Macedonia and Serbia or Bosnia into other places. And they would face the same kind of transit arrangements under the Common Transit uh, Convention. And Turkey being part of the the single market, also uh, shipping stuff through. So I I guess there's a a fair amount of it there. And my final thought on it is that the EU VET uh, agency is in Grange in County Meath, not too far from the Northern Ireland border. Um, or at least within striking distance of it. And uh, surely them vets ought to have a bit of an understanding of the geography concerned here. And actually, yeah. uh, what, so before
2: what, you get into that, Tony, the, in terms of the live exports, they, despite the presence of the Greens and the Irish government, live exports are going to be with us from Ireland for some time to come. There's a specific reference to increasing the supervision and animal welfare, namely beefing up the amount of vets, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, accompanying live cattle exports or live animal exports exiting Ireland. But anyway, sorry, go on.
0: Yeah, well, just on, on the first point, um, and, and this is kind of something that, that I find a bit confusing because uh, in all of my conversations with officials uh, on this this whole question, live animals and ag- agri-food exports were kind of lumped together as, as the real challenge here with this new legislation coming in from the EU. Um, but I was then contacted by the IFA this morning who said, actually, most of our live animal exports don't go over the land bridge they go from Rosslair to La harve uh, or cherbourg um so that that's a kind of a puzzling sidebar to this story uh, i i guess there there are perhaps horses that are sent from ireland across the land bridge to the netherlands and to france um uh, or it may well be that they just want to cover all the bases in case this issue comes up, you know, if for whatever reason, the live shipments do start to to come across the land bridge more often, notwithstanding what Boris Johnson has said. Um, But Sean, in in answer to your question about the Balkans, um, funny you should say that because that is really the essence of the Commission's response to this Irish proposal, because Yes, there are provisions in there for goods going from, say, Croatia or Slovenia to Bulgaria or Greece, because they have to cross uh, either Serbia or Bosnia, uh, not EU member states. So you have a transit arrangement there. The difference is, though, that the the, the length of the transit there is short. It's it's a couple of hours, um, whereas the transit from Ireland to the, to the continent across the land bridge is quite long. And if you're talking about uh, live animals or food, the longer that those consignments have to stay in a third country, the higher the risk. Um, I mean, for example, if any uh, live animals come across the land bridge from Ireland and there's an outbreak of foot and mouth in the UK, those animals will not be permitted into the, the continent. Even though they've been raised in Ireland, the very fact that they've they crossed the the UK transit uh, land bridge, uh, they wouldn't uh, be they
1: wouldn't be brought back into Ireland either, given the the strict quarantine that Ireland applies on foot and mouth. Yeah, mm. Sean, on exactly, your end, you yeah. could
2: you could foresee some practical problems coming along. If if, for example, Irish goods, Irish trucks were to be treated differently, presumably uh, that could create issues with how how people even roll onto a ferry if there's going to be different prioritized treatment for eu trucks coming off on the other end we both have a shared cultural love of fair queuing uh in our respective countries on on the islands you could see that these could become points of irritation at least if only for cultural reasons down at dover
1: they could be be, uh, points of cultural convergence but then again uh, one of the the great Uh, Battle cries of Brexiters might actually come to the uh, rescue here, which is the technological solution uh, to all of these things, which is to have the documentation all done electronically in advance and that the customs clearance is done electronically and via text messages or emails to the truck drivers on board the ships before they even dock. I mean, that was the system that was explained to me a couple of years ago when Dublin Port built its new customs facilities and was ready uh, for the then hard Brexit deadline. Remember that in the dim distant past of March 2018? Well, now uh, the uh, British customs are talking about doing a a similar thing with their new system, which isn't quite ready yet, but this is what they're they're planning to do with it. Uh, And it kind of makes sense, given that at the Port of Dover, there's no room, there's physically no room to park trucks and do inspections, so they have to keep Uh, things rolling along. Uh, And on the French side, there's a new system there as well, which they they think is very good and works. And some people uh, with the tongue not too far in the cheek have suggested that the British just uh, buy the French system and operate that instead of trying to build a a new system from scratch. But there is a kind of a technological solution, which should, in theory, uh, enable uh, people to get through without uh, big queues and that only Uh, trucks that do need to be inspected will be pulled aside. And as we know, that's a a pretty small number of any given shipload uh, of uh, freight coming on either a row row or a lift on, lift off basis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the the real problem here is, okay. on the one hand, we have the problem of Irish trucks coming off a third country and entering a continental port. And that seems to have been addressed by this uh, particular agreement. The other problem facing the government, and I think that's a reflected column in the programme for government uh, text that you mentioned there, is what happens to Irish trucks when they're on the land bridge uh, and and they're rolling up to Dover. Um, you know, should, should, if there are queues in Dover uh, for whatever reason, and, and there seem to be plenty of reasons, you know, notwithstanding the technological options there, is it fair that Irish trucks have to queue alongside British ones? Um, because certainly when the conversations were being had a couple of years back, back back, and even last autumn when we looked like we were facing no deal, I mean, Irish officials were, were talking about, uh, you know, a Ryanair style priority boarding for uh, Irish trucks um, so that they wouldn't have to queue up alongside third country vehicles. You know, this is just simply single market goods moving to another part of the single market. Why should they be uh, held up? And mingled in with uh, British third-country trucks. Of course, you can imagine a scenario where Irish trucks are being waved along the hard shoulder. You know how yeah. uh, you British truck drivers might might react uh, in that situation. By, by um, a gleeful but,
2: French official at the port of Calais.
0: Well, exactly. But I mean, the the, the problem, or was, even in in England,
1: which is worse yeah. still. If if there uh, somebody has to direct. Uh, British trucks into some holding pen and uh, allow EU, mostly Irish trucks, uh, to go down some kind of an an express entry lane. Um, Really? Are the stout yeoman of Kent going to put up with that? Yeah,
2: although interestingly, Tony, on on that programme for government point that you're making, it's talking about engagement with the European Commission and the partner countries in Europe, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, to ensure the the UK land bridge remains viable. There's not a specific reference to engaging with the UK as to how this would work, although presumably... You would think that some engagement on that level would happen.
0: Well, I think I think that that level of engagement that is in the text that you quoted there uh, reflects the discussions that I've been outlining. You know, like we've had these talks now over the past six weeks between uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, and Belgium and France and Germany and the Netherlands uh, to make sure things are okay on the continental side. how things are managed on the land bridge itself is reflected in the negotiating mandate. I mean, the negotiating mandate directives spell out, I think it's paragraph number five, that the you know the you know the the, the specific geographical situation of Ireland has to be tended to by both sides. And when they say both sides, they mean the UK and the EU. Now, I've, I've been asking around town here if if any of these negotiations have started or any of these discussions have been had and it looks like they haven't um mainly because you know michelle barney and david frost are consumed by the, the bigger picture negotiations um they're not that bothered by what might be regarded as a, as a parochial irish problem but they're going to have to get into it at some point and it looks like it'll you know it'll be the second half of this year that, that they're going to have to get into this and you know it's hard to see how The UK is going to be massively generous to um, the Irish freight industry and the Irish export industry to facilitate things, you know, when they're going to have so many other problems getting everything ready for the 1st of January.
2: Right. Okay, well, I suppose, look, that's a that's a good place to uh, to leave it for this week. And looking just looking ahead, I think the new Taoiseach here, Micheál Martin, is due to go to the north, which will be interesting to see what issues are raised there. He's due to meet the First Minister and Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland in the next week or so. So that should be uh, interesting to see what comes out of that on a Brexit front, although there are other considerations going on in Northern Ireland at the moment with regard to a COVID-19 problem and a gathering at a funeral that's causing some controversy there. So there might be a bit of fence mending rather than specifically Brexit focused things going on there at the at that stage. What's coming up in your respective bailiwicks.
1: Well, for me, um, there's a continuing rumbling about the appointment of David Frost, Mr. Brexit, to be the national security adviser to Boris Johnson. Frosty the no man, as he's known to some Brexiting journalists uh, in this town, right. um, is now to be the new adviser on uh, national security, even though he doesn't have uh, a security or defence uh, background. Uh, I mean, yes, he was a diplomat at one stage in his career, but um, it's not really his uh, forte. On the other hand, uh, I remember um, Mike Froman, uh, future US trade representative shortly before he became USTR, uh, being in Dublin Castle during the Irish presidency in 2012 to uh, basically help jump start what became known as the TTIP trade talks, uh, setting out why he thought it was a great idea to have uh, an EU-US Uh, trade agreement and making the point that his reporting line then was into the national security advisor, not the then trade representative, uh, uh, because trade was viewed in that administration as very much uh, a national security issue. Uh, And so perhaps uh, the uh, British will start looking at uh, trade more in that uh, perspective as well. And indeed, the outside world has been intervening this week, uh, as we have seen uh, with Hong Kong. And China and Huawei and all that sort of stuff cropping up very much a security driven uh, intrusion into the uh, realms of trade, uh, free or otherwise. But the other big issue uh, that is being talked of, uh, indeed, little else is being talked of uh, here in England this week, uh, is the reopening of pubs tomorrow, Saturday, uh, talk of carnage, of bloodbaths, of full hospitals, of police on standby for Friday before Christmas levels of epic benders going on of all the days they could have picked uh, for the whole year they pick a Saturday but uh, there you go Boris Johnson and I are both old enough to remember that Elton John song Saturday night's all right for fighting 24 hours time I think we'll be
0: finding out whether
1: it's uh, still valid in the 21st century
2: all right Tony
0: yeah, well, the bars have been open in Brussels for a couple of weeks, uh, even though uh, your correspondent hastens to add that uh, he hasn't been frequenting them because he's been too busy working. Of course, uh, maybe this weekend, I will uh, dip, dip my toe in the lake of Belgian beer. But um, next week, the, there's going to be a lot more preparation coming up to the first European summit for Mihol Martin and the first European summit, which will be a face-to-face summit since uh, back in January. So that will be... Uh, a fairly key moment. Um, Of course, it's all about the big recovery fund, 750 billion euro, 500 billion of grants uh, and 250 billion of loans. That's the way it's stacking up at the moment. And the seven-year EU budget is sort of being negotiated alongside that. Um, Interestingly, the Frugal 4, Denmark, the Netherlands, Austria, Sweden, have done a lot of foot digging in, uh, heel digging in rather, over the past few weeks about the nature of this huge recovery fund and who should get it and what strings will be attached. But they've started to turn their attention to Poland because Poland looks like it's going to do very well out of this recovery fund, according to the EU's uh, or the European Commission's allocation key as to how you distribute this money. And uh, some of these frugal four countries are frankly fed up with uh, Poland allegedly trampling over the rights of LGBT uh, the whole rule of law question in Poland over the judiciary, um, Poland's attitude to migration, Poland's attitude to climate change. So there's a lot of uh, unexpected anger building up among the Frugal Four and other countries as well about, you know, why should Poland do so well out of this fund when it is such a truculent member of the European Union on all these issues? Uh, So that is an indication of how dirty this fight is going to be over the next few weeks. Another big thing next week, of course, is... The election of the president of the Eurogroup, that's going to be on Thursday. Uh, 19 f- uh, finance ministers uh, a vote each, so it's a straightforward, whoever gets the 10 votes uh, can uh, will win it. Um, Pascal Donoghue is obviously in with a shout. Uh, he's up against the Spanish candidate Nadia Calvino and the Luxembourg candidate Pierre Grameña. Um And, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I think Pascal Donoghue is in with a shout even though uh, the Spanish candidate is is uh, the favourite because she's highly experienced and uh, she's a woman for the gender balance uh, element of things. and uh, But Pascal Donoghue is presenting himself as a bridge builder between the frugal north and the the more Flahulloch south if that's the right way to put it Uh, and you know it'll be interesting to see how this uh, this vote pans out next week
2: right okay well that's it for this episode from me Mungo and from his bedroom in Kildare
1: from me Sean Whelan in the Black Tower on Millbank in uh, Westminster here
0: in London and from me Tony Connolly in Brussels thanks as always for listening